So today we talk about hell. I figured we would talk about heaven last, so we end on an upbeat note. I always sort of ask myself when you give a presentation on something what the goal is, because these are not mere intellectual exercises. Anytime you preach the gospel, it's not just a mere intellectual exercise. You're trying to like move wills, and you're trying to move them in the right direction. So I think anytime you talk about hell, you, you want to do a couple things. One is you want to convince people that you don't want to go there. So that's the first, right? You, you actually do want to inspire some degree of like terror in them of, yeah, this would not be pleasant, so I'm going to do everything I can to avoid it. I also think you have to recognize that sin is the greatest evil in the world. I think anytime you talk about hell, it is sin that leads you there. And so you want to like detest sin. I remember my friend in seminary, Father Simon Tips, he told me that one of the great graces he was given that he prayed for so often in seminary was the grace to like really detest sin and all the saints. That's why the saints talk about how they'd rather die a thousand times than commit the smallest sin because they recognize the evil of sin and they hate it. And that's a good thing. I also think anytime you talk about how you want to inspire some degree of zeal in the souls of people, because not only are you not going to want to go to hell, you're also not going to want other people to go to hell. And so that inspires sort of this evangelical zeal. When you think of all the things the saints do to try and save souls, like Isaac Jogues, he goes out amongst the Hurons and the Iroquois and the Mohawks to preach the gospel. He leads behind his cushy life in France and would have probably been a very delightful priesthood in these beautiful French cathedrals. He leaves all of that behind so he can go forth and try and save souls. And Francis Xavier does the same thing. And so we want to have this tremendous zeal for souls where we do everything in our power to convert people to Christ. And so I think understanding the essence of hell and sort of how bad it is, that inspires us with some degree of zeal. We don't want to see our loved ones go there. We don't want to see ourselves go there. And ultimately, we really don't want to see anyone go there. So that's sort of the goal. And then next week when we talk about heaven, obviously it's something that's put forth that you want, that you desire but also the recognition that all your hope is in Jesus Christ and is through that hope you will avoid hell and attain heaven. So those are sort of my thoughts. So the first thing is the possibility of hell. Hell is tested to all the time in sacred scripture. I just picked a couple verses. Peter says, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of deepest darkness to be kept until the judgment... You have our Lord, when he talks about the last judgment, he says he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So sacred scripture talks about this place called hell, this possibility of hell. And if you think about it, this is actually not that surprising because every rational creature has the capacity to reject God. And you know this because you have rejected God many times in your life. You think about it, right? All the times... You've been moved, compelled, asked to do something good, and you refuse to do it. You have the capacity to reject God's grace. He does not impose it upon you. He gives you free will. He gives you the capacity to choose between various things in life. And ultimately, he gives you the capacity to choose him or to choose something else. So sacred scripture talks about how you can reject God. It talks about how you cannot hear his voice, right? If today you hear his voice, harden not your heart this rejection of the Pharisees of Christ, they don't believe. All of these are examples of the possibility of hell because you can reject God. And if you reject God, he's not going to impose his presence on you for all eternity. He will let you turn away from him 
and go off into eternal damnation. You also notice that hell was created originally for Satan and his angels. So I won't get into angelology too much, but just mention sort of Satan has his fall because the way in which Satan fell is instructive to us. And so if you think of an angel, when an angel is created, God imprints upon their, their intellects a few things. They know God. They know their relationship to God. They know their relationship to other angels. And they know what God wants them to do with their angelic life. So I always tell the kids at the school, all the things we have to like figure out, who we are, what we should do with life, angels have that at the first moment of their existence. And the reason for this is because they're not material beings. We learn things slowly by observation and through the material world and people tell us things. Angels don't have material senses. And so they learn things directly from God. And so God, at the first moment of their creation, he places the knowledge which he wants them to have upon their intellects. And so angels then do not go through life learning more. They don't have this slow developmental process. There's no like middle school or grade school for angels because they have all the knowledge which God gives them right away. And so there's two theories then of why Satan rejected the grace of God. And the first one, and I believe it traces its roots back to St. Basil, it's an Eastern one, is that essentially it's the theory of envy. Satan was, saw the divine plan for humans and how Christ was gonna take on human nature and Our Lady and the illustrious glory that she would be raised to and the illustrious glory that humanity would be raised through in Christ, and he was essentially envious. He didn't like this. Humans are sort of these lower creatures, and he didn't like the fact that God was going to do all these things to redeem them. And so he rejected that, and in rejecting that, he rejected grace. The more common theory is that which goes to Thomas, and it's the theory of pride, and it is essentially that Satan was so in love with his nature was so in love with his own sort of natural glory that when God offered him grace, out of pride, he rejected it. He refused to submit himself. He re refused to submit his will to God, and so he rejected grace. And so out of pride, he fell. So that is how Satan, one of those two ways, fell. And so once they rejected grace, then they were cast into hell. So humans are the same way. If we reject grace, we can reject grace through pride, through envy, through all these things. We also then are cast into hell, prepared for Satan and his angels, as our Lord says. So the essence of hell, the essence of what it is, the greatest punishment is the absence of God. So if you think about it, in the classical world, evil was always defined as the absence of good. Right? So a good which a thing should have because of what it is the absence of that good would be considered an evil. And since God is the greatest good, the absence of God would be the greatest evil. And so that is the primary punishment of hell, is the absence of God. And I, sh I should point out, God is present to things in various ways. So like right now, he's present to all of us insofar as he keeps us in existence. Right, Acts of the Apostles, in him we live, we move, we have our being. So God right now, at every moment of our life, is keeping us in existence. God is also present in a profound way to the just through grace. So through grace, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We become partakers of the divine nature. We partake of the divine life. And then in heaven, God is present to them in the fullness of grace in the beatific vision. So if you're in hell, you still exist, 
So God is still holding you in existence, but you lack the divine life. You do not have the beatific vision. You do not have the life of grace, the absence of the presence of God. You're just in existence. All you have is yourself and all the fallen creatures, and that's just terrible. There's also other punishments, it seems like, in hell. Uh, Our Lord talks about how their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. St. Alphonsus understood the worm is not dying as the worm of conscience. So whenever you commit something wrong, your conscience gnaws at you. So essentially, if you are in hell, for all eternity, your conscience will gnaw at you. Your conscience will condemn you. You will also have the pain of regret because you will see more clearly than all of the graces offered to you. And you think to yourself, God offered to me eternal life. He offered me sufficient grace for an eternity of happiness and I rejected that for some vanity, whatever it is, right? For some creature, for some pleasure, for some delight, whatever it may be. And so you're going to have major like fear of missing out, right? You chose a lesser good over a greater good, over the greatest good. And so there's going to be pain in that. It's, It's regret. Anytime we make a bad decision in life, we have regret. And so this is going to be regret for all eternity. And so it's just going to gnaw at you. Dante, if you've ever read Dante's Inferno, you should read Dante. It's it's a delightful read, all three of them. Um, Great Italian poet. Dante has also in hell these punishments which are called contrapassos. And contrapassos are like punishments that are fitting in light of the sin. And so if I remember right, fortune tellers in hell in Dante, they have to walk around with their heads on backwards. And the reason for that is because fortune tellers illicitly, immorally tried to foretell the future. And so now their heads are stuck on backwards so that they can no longer see in front of them. They can no longer see the future. Dante also puts like the wrathful in this pit and they're just like angry at each other and yelling at each other. All the, the greedy and the misers and all that, he has them weighed down by this like treasure chest that they just bump up against each other. So these are punishments that are sort of fitting in light of crime. The church has never said one way or the other if those punishments exist. I think Dante, if you would say, he'd say, no, it's fitting. It would be fitting. But the church does say the primary punishment is the absence of hell. If there are these other physical punishments, it would be in light of the justice of God in light of sin. But definitely your conscience and definitely you will have major regret as well. You will, you will realize that you, you had a seriously excellent opportunity of a lifetime, of an eternity, eternal lifetime that you threw away for something. And you will, you will not be pleased with that, obviously. So the other portion of hell is the fact that it is eternal. This is always very, very clear in sacred scripture. And I just gave our Lord's quote in Matthew, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You also have the fact that in the parable of Lazarus, Um, When Abraham talks to him, he says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. So there you see heaven and hell. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And so the idea is that once you are in hell, you are in hell for all eternity, Once you are in the kingdom of heaven, you are in the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. 
as the saints used to say, as long as God is God, you will remain in heaven or you will remain in hell. And the reason for this, um, the mechanics, I should say, of this, there is, in the Middle Ages, there was some debate about why this is or what this looks like. And I'm way oversimplifying their arguments. But essentially, you have St. Thomas and you have Blessed Scotus. They gave two different reasons. Scotus was of the opinion that if you die in a state of mortal sin and you are damned, God no longer offers you the grace of repentance. And so we stand always in need of the grace of God to repent. So every time you come to confession, God has offered you grace that you have then responded to. And so Scotus was of the opinion that when you are damned, God no longer offers you the grace to repent. And so you can't. You just cannot do it. Thomas didn't like that idea. Thomas was of the opinion that when you die, whatever your will is like fixed on at the end, that's what it's fixed on forever. And so if your will is fixed on a sin or some created good rather than God, then even if God were to continue to offer you grace for all eternity, you would continue to reject it. He would say something along the lines of, well, you've been rejecting it throughout your life or you rejected it at the final moments of your life. And so you're going to continue to reject it for all eternity. I always sort of like Thomas's idea better. I know C.S. Lewis has that great line where he says, the doors of hell are locked from the inside, so that the souls have chosen that, and they lock themselves in in their misery. Exorcists will talk about this when they deal with demons. They will talk about how demons will say that they understood what they were doing when they rejected God, and they chose to do it, and they would continue to choose to do it. They're just fixed on evil. And we see this, I think, amongst humans, that one of the sort of fruits of sin is we just get fixated on evil. We create bad habits, and we just keep, as Scripture says, returning to the vomit. And so when we die fixed on evil, fixed on sin, we just remain that way for all eternity. But whatever the exact mechanics of why that is, Sacred scripture is very clear that once you are in hell, you are in hell for all all eternity, and it is eternal. The idea of an eternal hell, I think, makes some people uncomfortable. They think that is rather extreme of a punishment. And I've always thought the reason for that is we don't fully grasp the nature of sin. And so one of the fundamental ideas of sin, it it is an infinite offense against God. And we recognize that depending on what sort of crime you commit against somebody, that it changes the degree of evil that it is. So like if you steal from some random person on the street, that's bad. But if you steal from your pious grandmother, everyone would be like, that's way worse. I mean, that's just, that's mean. You shouldn't do that. It's your grandmother. So we recognize that based upon the dignity and who the person is, it changes the gravity of sin. And so the reason why sin is this infinite offense as Garagul Lagrange used to say over and over again, is really for like three reasons. The first is sin is infinitely foolish because sin is an act, a word, or a deed contrary to the divine will. And the divine will is infinitely wise. God is infinitely knowledgeable. And so if you choose to act against the infinitely wise will of God, you are infinitely stupid, right? You shouldn't do that. The other reason is that sin is always infinitely malicious. Because God is infinitely good, and God wills an infinite good for each one of you, eternal life, partaking of his own life. And so if you turn away from that, you've turned away from infinite good. You have acted contrary to this infinitely good being. 
So it's like when you steal from your pious grandmother, like that's really bad because she's a really good person. Now God is that way ad infinitum, right? Infinitely good, infinitely holy. The final reason is sin is an infinite affront against the majesty of God. God is infinite in his majesty. He holds you in existence while you sin. He allows you, he gives you life, he gives you opportunities, and you throw all of that back in his face. So sin is an infinite offense. And so there can be sort of this infinite punishment for it. So that's hell. It's eternal. The essence of, of hell is the absence of God. You'll also have um, pain of conscience. You'll have pain of regret. And this will last for all of eternity. I think it was St. Alphonsus. He gives this great image because St. Alphonsus was great with images. He says, like, imagine going to the largest lake you know. And you begin with a teaspoon, taking that wa the water out of that lake and, like, moving it someplace. And St. Alphonsus says, imagine, after many, many years, you have moved all of that water to someplace else. He would say, eternity is just beginning. So don't find eternal hell, because it will be not pleasant for all eternity. So, hopefully you say, okay, that's good. I don't want to go to hell. Very good. How do we avoid hell, right? They're both positive, positive things we must do and negative things which we must do. And on page two, I just... Off the top of my head, I listed like all the things the Lord says you must do to inherit eternal life. So you have Matthew 19, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. James points out that you have to keep all the commandments. It's like if you get pulled over for speeding, the police officer doesn't care that you were like, you had your seatbelt on and you used your turn signal. You still get a ticket because you broke one portion of the law, so you're guilty. James says it's the same thing. We have to have faith, as Hebrews 11 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. Paul points out that we are saved in hope. John, in both his gospel and his letters, he puts the priority of love. We must love God. We must love our neighbor. James points out that this love must manifest itself in good works. Our Lord says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus also points out the necessity of baptism. So you have all of those things which you must do. So what the mechanics of that is, sort of in the, in the order of, of grace, is when you are baptized, you are given various things. You are given the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. You are given the infused virtues, faith, hope, love, but also infused prudence, fortitude, temperance, justice. All these virtues, you are given everything which you need to attain eternal life. Caragou Lagrange used to call it a spiritual organism in your soul. Right? You have eternal life. You partake, as Peter says, of the divine nature. You are able to know God and love God in a supernatural way. And this should bring forth the fruit of eternal life. And so what happens then throughout life is this either grows, if we take care of our spiritual life, if we prune it through confession, if we feed it with the Eucharist and with prayer, then we allow this spiritual seed in our hearts, this divine life, to grow. If we sin, then we do one of two things. If we have a venial sin, it's like we wound this spiritual organism. It's like we inject it with something that makes it sick. And so it's not as vibrant. Divine love within us is sort of sluggish. If we kill it, then we've committed mortal sin. Mortal sin comes from the first letter of John, where he talks about sin ad mortalum, literally sin unto death. And so what grave sin is essentially is spiritual suicide. You have taken the divine life within you and you have killed it because you have chosen something gravely contrary to it. So you can think, again, another way of thinking of it, 
is if you are on a path to heaven. Baptism sort of puts you on this path to heaven. Venial sin is like when you stumble. It's like road bumps, right? Those bumps that they always add that you never see till the first time you hit them, right? It kind of throw, it jolts you. It throws you off. But it doesn't totally throw you off the road. Your back hurts if you don't have great transmission, right? So maybe your car hurts. But you're still proceeding in the right direction. That's like venial sin. Mortal sin is like you totally just went off the road. You, you chose a totally different path, a path towards something else. So, you have your baptismal grace. If you die with that grace, then you are in a state of grace. The divine life still dwells within you. Even if you have a ton of venial sins, you'll have a long time in purgatory, but you still have the divine life within you. The Holy Spirit still dwells within you. The love of God still dwells within you. And God's not going to cast you into hell if you have love for him. If you have committed grave sin, you've not confessed him, then you no longer have the love of God within you. And as John says in his letters and in his gospel, then you remain in death. So, just quickly, because everyone always asks, what makes a sin grave? It's important. There are three things. Three things that make a sin grave, right? Right. If any of you were taught by the sisters back in the day, you probably still remember it. The first is you have to have knowledge that what you are doing is evil. You don't have to know the gravity of the evil. Otherwise, we can never commit sin, because we, a grave sin, because we never fully understand how wicked sin is like in the eyes of God. But we have to know it's wrong. So it's like Sunday Mass, I know it's wrong not to go to Sunday Mass. Okay. You have to consent. So you cannot like commit grave sin in your dreams, because I don't know about you guys, but I don't have any freedom in my dreams. If I did, I'd probably have way better dreams. I would dream of like how to, I would just do all the work I needed to do and I would just dream it and then I wouldn't have to do it when I was awake. It'd be much easier. So you have to have consent. <laughs> I would send all these emails in my dream and then I would think, oh, I don't have to answer that email. I, I already emailed them back. So you have to have consent. So you cannot accidentally commit grave sin, right? So let's just take Sunday Mass, right? You're lying in bed Sunday morning and you're like, I know I should go to Mass, but I don't want to. You're awake. It's not like you accidentally overslept. If you accidentally slept through every possible Sunday Mass you could get to, and it's not your fault, you tried to set an alarm, it just happens, you didn't have consent of the will there. And then it has to be grave matter. And grave matter, you kind of just have to know. It's in sacred scripture. Paul lists all these grave sins. The church over in the tradition has listed them as well. But it has to be something serious. So that is grave sin. Full knowledge, consent of the will, and grave matter. All of those things is what kills the divine life within you. If one of those is missing, then the sin would only be venial. It would hinder growth. It would not destroy it within you. So I think that is the main things I wanted. Good, good. Any questions? And I will remember to repeat the questions. No questions on hell? Somebody has to have one question. Any? Yes. Yes, the question was, if, we, if you missed last Sunday's lecture, could you get the, the handout sheet with it? I think the handout's posted on the website. If not, I can have Tammy post it on the website. Yes, next Sunday as well, I will probably have something. I always just throw together some scripture quotes that I think of off the top of my head. Just... I only follow it loosely, but good, yes. Any other questions? Yes. 
Yeah, so the question was, what does the church teach about unborn souls? The church says we don't know. Because what the church is doing is it's holding various things in tension. So we know there is a necessity for baptism, right? Our Lord's very clear on that. The church also talks about like the baptism of blood, you know, if you're martyred. Because you had a lot of early Christians who they were like going through the RCIA process and they would get rounded up and sent to the Colosseum. And the church was like, look, they weren't able to be baptized with water, but they were baptized with their blood for the love of Christ. There's also baptism of desire, right? Again, you're on your way to church to receive baptism. You get in a car accident. It's like you're clearly trying. So the church understands the necessity of baptism. But the church also understands that God does not hold you responsible for things that aren't your faults. And so if you die in the womb, that's, that's, not, not, that's not your fault. Um, you really had no chance there. And so there have been various solutions along the way. One was what was called limbo. The medievals really liked limbo. And what limbo was is you didn't have the beatific vision in heaven. So next week I'll talk about this a lot. How the essence of heaven is you get to see God face to face, as John says. The church is like, well, because you weren't baptized, you don't have the beatific vision. But you would have no personal sin if you died in the womb. You still had original sin because we couldn't wash it away in baptism. But you had no personal sin. So they came up with this idea of limbo. And what limbo would be is it would be like you see God through creation. The way like philosophers understand God. But you do not have the beatific vision. So there's no punishment in limbo. Um, but you don't have the beatific vision. You have what they call natural happiness. That was their solution. You're perfectly happy in the natural order without the beatific vision. So the medievals really liked limbo. Um, probably, it's probably 18 years ago, I believe it was the International Theological Commission, had a document on limbo. The, the theologians of the time didn't really like it, and it's really complicated why they didn't like it. It has all these things to do with uh, nature and grace and all of that. But, they didn't like it, and so they held out that maybe there's, there's a hope through the prayers of the church, through the faith of the church, through the fact that we can celebrate you know, masses for the dead, that there may be a possibility of even souls who had no chance to be baptized to go to heaven. So the church says, look, we don't know because it has not been revealed to us. It's a truth that we don't know philosophically, but we don't know. We know that we have to be baptized, we know that God doesn't hold us accountable for things that is not our fault. So there's this possibility of limbo, where they're in this natural state of happiness without suffering. They just don't see God face to face. Or there's been other suggestions of maybe through the prayers of the church and whatnot, they may be able to attain the beatific vision. So that is a very simple answer to a very complex issue. Yeah. Yes. So the, and I won't go into the metaphysics of it, the philosophical arguments. Um, but yes, at the first moment of existence, when sperm and egg meet, you have a human person, and to be a human person means you have a rational soul. So you have a soul at the first moment of your existence. Yes, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. So the question is, um, you know, you, let's say you have a child at home and they don't want to go to Sunday Mass, and you tell them it's a grave sin, and they, they say they don't believe that it's a grave sin. So it's always, it's always hard to judge the conscience of someone it's very easy to know if something is grave matter or not, right? So we can sit here, we can say not going to Sunday Mass is grave matter, right? Now, whether the degree of, like, knowledge and cons consent someone has, that you can never really judge, right? Only God can judge that. 
what it comes down to essentially is, I think in that situation, if, if someone's obstinately refusing to go to Sunday Mass, it's like how much have they rejected their faith? Because we are responsible to respond to God with faith. And so there would be in that scenario, maybe the possible sin would be the rejection of the faith. There could be like obstinacy in sin. So it would be tough for me to like judge culpability. I, I mean, I can judge whether or not something is grave matter or not, but to know whether or not someone has full knowledge or consent of the will. So is, you know, usually you have consent unless, you know, things are kind of hairy psychologically. But, I mean, ultimately, we have to sort of make choices in life. And I know for parents, it's the same thing I go through a lot as a priest. Like, I can't make choices for other people. So I can will with every fiber of my being that you get into heaven. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's your choice. I, I do the best I can. I try and preach well. I try and make myself available for confession. I beg. I plead. I do all the things which God does in the Old Testament. But at the end of the day, I am not your Messiah. And you're going to respond or not to grace in the depths of your heart. And God's going to judge that. And that's, I do the best I can. That's all you can do. It really is. Be a good example give you the best explanations you can, pray, but understand that ultimately it's like you're not the Messiah. As painful as that is. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the question is, can you receive forgiveness outside of um, the sacrament of confession? Yeah, and you can, I mean, you can give strong examples of that. I, I usually go up to Borgia or to St. Joe's in Grafton for confession. So imagine, right, I'm going to confession, I get like hit by a bus on the way, right? Can you sin be forgiven? Yes. God is not bound by the sacraments. We are, right? I'm bound by the sacraments. I'm bound by the words the church gives me. God can give grace however he wants. That's his business. So it's sort of like with the child that never was baptized. God can give sanctifying grace to that child outside of baptism if he wants. God can forgive your sins outside of the sacrament of confession if he wants. The standard church teaching is in order for you to, be, have, to have your sins forgiven outside of confession, you have to have what's called perfect contrition. So there's two types of contrition. There's perfect contrition and there's imperfect contrition, right? <laughs> imperfect contrition is sorrow for sins, not entirely because of the love of God. So like you're sorry for your sin because you're terrified of hell and you'd like to go to heaven, right? That is called imperfect contrition. It is a sorrow for, for sin that usually will take you to the sacrament of confession. I mean, I think in my own spiritual life, for a long time I was just going to confession because I didn't want to go to hell. Like the love of God was kind of a secondary thing, right? So it's imperfect. Perfect contrition is when you're sorry for your sins because of the love of God, right? So you think about like why you might be sorry because you hurt somebody. You might be sorry because you got caught, right? It's like the kids, you know, the kid was stealing and he's not actually sorry that he stole his teachers, you know, whatever. He's just sorry, sorry that he got caught. That's like imperfect sorrow. Or if you, if you actually love somebody and you think, wow, I, I really feel bad that I hurt him, that would be perfect. So if, if outside of the confession, um, the sacrament of reconciliation, for your sin to be forgiven, you have to have perfect contrition. It has to be from the love of God because you have to have the love of God in your heart. That's key. That's sanctifying grace. That's always the mark of it if you love God. So if you only had imperfect contrition, you really don't have the love of God within you. But if you do, if you're actually sorry. So, you know, rule of thumb, like St. Alphonsus used to talk about this. If, God forbid, you commit a grave sin, what you should do 
is you should make an act of contrition as perfectly as you can, and you should ask the Lord to take you to the sacrament of reconciliation as quickly as he can, and then do your best to avoid sin from there on out. That's what you should do. Hope in the mercy of God. And then don't sin on the front end. <laughs> yeah, so the last rites are really three sacraments. You want to receive three sacraments. You want to receive confession one last time. Um, you want to receive communion, and you want to be anointed. So those would be the last rites. And then coupled to that are various prayers as you're dying. We, the litany of saints, I pray that you may you know, persevere in, in grace and go to the kingdom of heaven. Good. Anything else? Yes? So the question was, what if you see me in public, can you ask uh, to go to confession? I was told very, very clearly by Father Ken Ombernick. He told all of this when we were on retreats um, before we were ordained deacons. He said, men, he said, never, ever refuse someone confession. Um, so the, to the best of my ability, I, I really try not to. If somebody needs to go to confession, if you ran into me at the store, it'd probably be Quick Trip uh, in the hot food aisle. <laughs> Um, if you asked to go to confession, I would say sure. And I always have a stole with me, so I would just like tell you we'd come outside like where nobody could hear us, and you go to confession. Because here's the thing for me as a priest: let's say I said no, right? Let's say I said no. Why don't you just go on Tuesday? You know, like you asked you asked me on Monday. I said just go go to Father Strand on Tuesday. If you died that night, I would feel terrible. I would that would eat at me for the rest of my life. So selfishly, I would say yes, but also for the sake of your soul. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, if you catch me like 30 seconds before Mass, I cannot hear your confession then, right? I might say, well, come get me after Mass. Or if somebody texts me and they're like, hey, can I go to confession? I will try and fit it in at the next available time I have. Um, but I try to the best of my ability to always hear a confession. Question was, is when I'm hearing confessions, am I not you? Yeah, this is the complexity of the priest, right? Because when I am acting in the sacraments, I should be entirely dead to Christ, right? I am. I, when I absolve your sins, I am doing it in the person of Christ. However, as a priest, I am still a human person, and I'm still an instrument of Christ. And so my humanity, this is one of the tough things about being a priest um, that I've found. My humanity often gets in the way of God's work. And that's very, very frustrating as a priest. Um, my friend, Father Simon Tibbs, the maniple which I wear, he always, he always, he loved it because he said, it's kind of like your humanity, Kevin. He's like, like the maniple's always getting in the way and it's like almost knocking things over. And he's like, that's your humanity. It's like always in the way. And Christ has to work through that. So it is, right? Because the fact of the matter is, is I still have to get to the confessional as a human being so that Christ can act through me. I still have to be present at Mass so that I can consecrate the Eucharist. So he does use me as his instrument. And so if I'm a defective instrument, then he's going to have a hard time. He doesn't need me, but he does want to work through me. And my duty, my priestly duty, is to become like Christ and to be a docile instrument in his hand and not resist that, which is very hard. Very hard. It's hard to be docile. I'll increase your tithe because of that. No, the, um, the question was, can you do, do confession remotely, essentially? Um, the church ruled on this during COVID. Sacraments are human things. 
and they're an interaction and encounter between humans in a real way, and so they have to be done in person. And I know with like Zoom and all of this, we, we've lost track of what reality is. And the easiest way to think of it is, let's say you have kids, and you say, I wanna see, see my kids, and I say, okay. And then I like show you a picture of them. You know that's not the same as you actually holding your child, right? I have a niece out in California, and I get to see her on a Zoom call. That's not the same as me being there. Same thing with the sacraments, it's not the same. You have to encounter Christ in his person, and so to receive a sacrament, you have to be present, you have to be there. Again, if, if through no faults of your own, you, you cannot make it to confession, make as perfect an act of contrition as you can, trust yourself to the divine mercy. That's what you gotta do. Ultimately, we, as I will try and point out next week, we are entirely dependent upon the mercy of God. Good, good, yes. Why is there so many versions of the act of contrition? I have no idea, to be honest. Um, some of them are older than others. So what the act of contrition is trying to do, actually, it's rather clever. And now I'm going to try and recite it off the top of my head, so I'm not going to be able to do it because this always happens, right? You say, oh, my God. The one I always say, oh, my God, I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee. And I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. So what does that sound like? Imperfect contrition. But most of all, because they offend thee, my God, who are all good and all deserving of my love. Perfect contrition. Notice how it moves. I firmly resolve with the help of your grace to confess my sins, to do penance, and to amend my life. So those are the essential parts of the penitent is sorrow for sin, confession, firm purpose of amendment. So a good act of contrition, and the reason why I don't think you just want to like toss them out, is it has all the essential parts of what you're trying to do. And so rather than like making your own, just have a good one and pray with it because there's, there's a, a genius behind them. But over time, you know, it's like, well, maybe we should teach the kids a simpler one. Maybe we should just do this, that, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's very confusing. I have the one I've always said. I remember when I was a kid, I learned this very cheesy one, and I was still saying it when I was like 20-something. One day I was like, this sounds bad. Like, I'm a grown man, so I thought. You know, a 22-year-old American male is like barely a grown man, right? I think I was getting my shoes on the right feet at least, and I was like, I gotta, I gotta find a better act of contrition. Yeah, say what you remember. Yep, yep. The main thing is make sure your act of contrition expresses sorrow for your sins. That's the main thing. I, I forget which one we have tacked up in the confessional. I remember I put some thought into which one we put up, and I had reasons for it in the spring. I can't remember what they were. That's, that's what happens when you're charged. You have a good idea, and you forget why. I had one more question. Yes. So, what you Yes, the question was, you know, to non-believers... Um, can you distill it simply as like the rejection of God? The difference between, you know, heaven and hell, is it just the rejection of God? I would say in a way, yes. You could just, it's a rejection of divine grace, right? Because God infallibly promises to give everyone sufficient grace for their salvation, um, whatever that looks like. So everyone has the sufficient grace um, to have faith, to have hope, to have love. Um, and so, yes, if, if someone is in hell, it is because they rejected God and his grace. Now, when you're doing sort of these dialogues with people and you're talking about sin, I mean, I, because of my philosophical background, I always, I usually appeal to philosophical arguments of why things are sinful. I mean, everything which is sinful is essentially, essentially some, sort of, some sort of action which is con contrary to human flourishing. 
So if you think of the human person and what we are as rational animals, everything which sort of prevents us from flourishing as humans would be something that's sinful. So like if you eat way too much, and we've all done this, right? You're very sluggish, you don't feel very good. You can't really function very well as a human, right? That's the sin of gluttony. So it's contrary to human good. So if you wanna be more sophisticated, you can be in sort of the realm of philosophical ethics or moral theology. But I do think, in a way, in a sense, yes. If you reject, God is offering you grace in this life. If you reject it, then you will be damned. And everyone, the church has always been clear on this. There's no such thing as double predestination. You're not, no one is predestined to hell. So God gives everyone sufficient grace. It's up to us to sort of respond to it. Now it gets complicated with the unborn child issue and all of that, but I think it's one Timothy, God desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. And so if that's what he desires, and it's a supernatural end, then he is bound to give us the grace to attain that. He does. Yes. Yes, the question regards invincible ignorance, what it is, and it is a doctrine for sure. Invincible ignorance um, comes from the Latin unconquerable is what it would mean. So it is ignorance that is not your fault, essentially, right? So we all are sort of bound by certain things. We're all bound to pursue truth, to pursue goodness, to try and do well, whatever it is. But let's say you grew up in like North Korea, right? You're going to have a, you, the gospel's never going to be presented to you in a way that you really have like a realistic chance of accepting it. And so you might have been told from a young age that like Christianity is this capitalist whatever and it's just terrible and whatever. So you reject it. You would have their invincible ignorance because you, you were never really given a chance to know the truths of the gospel and to make like an informed decision. So it's also, it happens actually a lot, um, I think, with Catholics now, where because formation was a little, not the greatest for many years, I mean, I think of the church I grew up in, I didn't really know anything. Um, it's very possible that, like, you could go through significant portions of your life and not know something was a sin, and it may not have been your fault. You may have never even thought of it. You may have never thought of, like, looking it up. You may have never even thought about asking a priest. And then one day you find out, oh, that is sinful. It's very possible you had invincible ignorance. Now, you cannot, like, try not to know things. That's not, that is called vincible ignorance. Vincible ignorance is ignorance which is conquerable. So, like, parts of my life I had a lot of vincible ignorance. Like, I was stupid and didn't know things, but that's because I chose to be stupid and didn't know things. That's vincible ignorance. That's your fault because you could have figured it out. But I, I still think to this day it's possible in many realms to not know that something is wrong um, through no fault of your own. And then when you learn, your ignorance has been vincibled, it has been conquered, and then you gotta do what's right. But yes, it is definitely a doctrine of the church. That's part of the idea of full knowledge. You have to acknowledge that something is wicked. Yes, I'll take one more and we'll pray evening prayer. Yeah, so the question was, what about the punishment for sin after confession? I had a Q&A video on this um, when I talked about temporal punishment of sin. So in sacred scripture, there is both eternal punishment, which is hell, and then there is temporal punishment. And the classic example is Moses. When Moses sins against God, God tells him that his sin is forgiven. We know God forgave the sin of Moses and did not cast him into eternal damnation because of the transfiguration. However, God inflicts this temporal punishment upon Moses. He's not allowed to enter the Holy Land. So sin comes with this temporal punishment as well. 
The temporal punishment is not forgiven in the sacrament of confession. That's why we have indulgences and we do penance afterwards. The eternal punishment is. Um, yeah, like I said, I have some Q&A videos which go more deeply into indulgences and temporal punishment. I always use the example of like a kid breaking a um, vase. Like if, you know, my mother tells me when I was little not to play baseball in the house and I like play baseball in the house, which I probably did. I, I don't think she's been listening to these talks, so I don't think I'm revealing anything to her. <laughs> Always know, because I'll get a text <laughs> whenever I reference something. Um, let's say I break the vase, right? And mom comes home, and let's say I'm legitimately sorry, right? I'm like, yeah, mom, I'm, you know, perfect contrition. I'm very sorry. Mom says, that's great. I forgive your sin. I still have to, like, do something to fix the vase, right? I mean, maybe, maybe I can't fix the vase perfectly, but it's like, well, go wash the cars or something. Do some... The point of temporal punishment is corrective. It's like, well, you have to learn not to do this in the future um, so that you grow as a human person. And so we naturally do that. That's really what temporal punishment kind of is. We're good? All right, since I have the mass tonight, we'll pray evening prayer. Any other questions, you can always email them to me as well.